Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to the season finale of Parallax. Uh, this is our season five, and um, we've had quite the year. We've had our centennial episode with uh, Professor Fuster. And uh, for those of you who have not listened to that episode, I recommend you go back and listen to that one. That's been, you know, the highlight for me personally, you know, this year. And uh, like in our past years, uh, you know, this year, once again, we have the pleasure, the privilege and the honor of having none other than Dr. Niger to do the season finale. This is year five. He will be doing the finale for us. Uh, just a wrap up of 2023, all the major advances within cardiovascular medicine that were presented at the various conferences internationally will be discussed. And um, I think he's someone who needs an introduction. He's a dear friend. He's a consultant interventional cardiologist at Imperial College in London. And what's also fascinating and special about this episode, other than, you know, which is different than the prior episodes, is that this is being shot uh, live with him in person in a studio in London. Uh, so with that introduction, uh, Suk, welcome on the show and thank you so much for doing this for us again. No, thank you, Anka. I feel overly flattered now. <laughs> Your introduction is very effusive. Thank you very much. It's a real privilege to be here. I'm glad to join you in person. This is our first time in person. Uh, and I'm glad to get an opportunity to discuss some of the studies, the research, the, the science over the last year. Cardiology, obviously, a dynamic, interesting space. And I, I would also recommend to the listeners and the viewers to, to go back and listen to Valentin Fuster's um, uh, Centennial pre uh, podcast. I thought it was great. Wonderful anecdotes and stories in there. So, yeah, highly recommend it. I know. Thanks. Thanks for listening. Thanks for being a listener. Thanks for being a guest on the show. You know, like you said, you're sort of the, the permanent fixture. You're sort of, <laughs> you <laughs> resonate with Parallax, the, the season finale. And Yeah, gosh, think, <laughs> it's a lot of pressure. <laughs> um, so I think we've, you know, we've quite some studies to discuss. And so we'll just dive right in. Mm. Um, I want to start by discussing the some of the, you know, percutaneous coronary intervention studies, which were uh, you know, presented throughout the spectrum of the entire year, actually, quite frankly. Mm. And uh, we'll start with, um, I think, uh, 2023 is, is re resonates with Orbita 2. Yeah. Um, so I think um, we'll, we'll let you take center stage here and talk to us a little bit, little bit more about Orbita 2. Yeah, so uh, it's a great study to start with because obviously it's just been presented at the AHA. And it was presented by one of our fellows. So I should declare first off that I am an orbiter investigator. I work at Imperial College uh, and Rasha Alami, the PI, is a good personal friend of mine. And we've known each other for coming up to almost 20 years. So uh, naturally, I have a bias. The uh, Orbiter 1 study was highly controversial. I think it upset a lot of people, but I think it also got people thinking about what are the merits of coronary intervention. We've all seen patients who've had classical angina, also we thought. We've done investigations and put them on the cath lab table. We've done an angiogram and found a lesion. We've then stented their lesion. Looks fantastic. Ideally, you should use intravascular imaging to make sure your stent is well expanded. But afterwards, they continue to have the symptoms, which are similar to what they had before. And now all of a sudden we tell the patient, no, those symptoms you've got are non-ischemic and non-anginal. And we've all seen patients like that. We know that happens. And uh, the reason that Orbiter uh, was done originally was to try and really challenge intervention to see what it adds over and above medical therapy. Mm -hmm. And we've long known that in chronic coronary syndromes, patients with stable coronary disease, it is hard for us to show a benefit in a reduction in heart attack and stroke and death because the adjunctive therapies that we give are really good. 
So when Orbital 1 was designed by uh, Russia and uh, Daryl Francis, they uh, wanted to uh, design sham angioplasty, or better, probably better um, called placebo procedure, such that patients did not know whether they'd had an angioplasty or not. And all of those patients were super well managed on really aggressive medical therapy. They were mostly on three antianginal, some even more. And they all had single vessel disease. And they were then randomized to angioplasty or not. And they did not know what they had. And the blinding analysis was actually very stringent and demonstrated that most patients did not know what they'd had. And what we found in that Orbital 1 study was that the exercise time did go up with angioplasty. Without doubt, it did but it also went up in the placebo arm. And so it therefore showed that the incremental gain in angioplasty in those patients was small and smaller than we had anticipated. When we designed the study, uh, certainly um, uh, the, two, the, the two PIs didn't expect it to be a negative study. They assumed it was going to be positive. And, and that obviously led to a lot of upset. People were uncertain whether we had done it right. There was a lot of talk over the fact that most of the patients chose to have intervention. Those that had been randomised to a placebo procedure, they all chose to have intervention. And you have to take that into account of how we'd recruited the patients within the British system. Many patients wait uh, quite considerable time before they come to the cardiac cath lab. And all the patients had been told they were going to get intervention and promised that they would get intervention at the end. And so they all chose to take us up on that promise. When we looked at Orbiter 2, we aimed to uh, address all of the key questions that were asked at the end of Orbiter 1. And what uh, my colleague Dr. Alami did in a very expert fashion was to look at each component of the criticism for Orbiter 1 and address them in turn. And they looked at patients with multivessel disease and they made sure that every single patient had definitive assessment of ischemia. Every single patient in Orbiter 2 had multiple sources of ischemia proven with stress echocardiography, stress MRI, and they all had uh, pressure wire positive uh, ischemic lesions in their vessels. And they then made sure that they had angina. This is quite important. And what they did in their in the run-up phase for the study was uh, follow the patients and discontinued all of their medications, anti-anginal medications, and then see if they still had symptoms. And surprisingly, when you go through patients like this, some of them don't. And maybe they never actually had angina in the first place. Maybe they had non-cardiac chest pain and then went through a cardiac assessment process that led to discovery of coronary disease. Uh, but they didn't necessarily have angina as per se. So those patients then don't continue in the study. So that wheedles out patients who don't have angina. We want patients who genuinely have angina, who are limited, and then those patients were then recruited. They had an invasive procedure. Every vessel that had a stenosis was pressure-wired, and they were then randomized to either placebo or intervention in the normal way. This study is larger than Orbiter 1. It's around 300 patients. Still a small study. We're not powered for outcomes in terms of mortality or morbidity. But the idea was to look to see if symptoms improved. And sure enough, in this new study that was recently presented at AHA, we see that there is a significant improvement with symptoms in patients with proven ischemia and multiple coronary narrowings. So we see a definite improvement. Now, what uh, people will say is that this is a, uh, a treatment effect that's being seen in patients who've had their antianginals stopped. And that causes some consternation. I would interpret it in a number of ways. I would say that lots of patients come to the cardiac cath lab 
without necessarily being on multiple anti-angina therapy mm-hmm. a lot of the time. I think mm-hmm. we all know that this happens. Particularly in the UK here, where uh, patients are assessed through what we call the rapid access chest pain service, which primary care physicians can refer in. They'll have lots of, uh, they'll be seen by a specialist nurse or a, or a specialist cardiologist, and they'll often be referred for a CTCA in the UK, a, a CT coronary angiogram. And then on the back of that, if it shows severe disease, we are more likely to take that patient to the cardiac cath lab. And so that time for the introduction of multiple antianginals can uh, be shortened. But now, should those patients have intervention? Well, Orbiter 2 actually answers that question. And it says that if the patient does not want to take multiple medications, then in fact, we can render them angina-free by doing intervention. It has to be well-performed. And still, many patients in the PCI arm still did have angina at the end of their um, of the process. So it shows that PCI is not perfect, but it does show that PCI helps. Now, lots of people have interpreted Orbiter 1 as a negative study. It's not. In fact, it shows that we can resolve ischemia, and showed as Orbiter 2. It shows that ischemia, when you use stress echo and stress MRI, ischemia is resolved by angioplasty. So if you believe in ischemia, if you believe in the concept of reduced blood supply, then we can be satisfied that not only are we improving that, but we're also improving patient symptoms. And I'd say that's positive. And I think the, the, the study uh, has been well received by the community. My only caution would be for people not to overinterpret it. This doesn't necessarily mean that you should just be slamming in stents left, right and centre. These are well worked up patients. They had proven ischemia. They all had proven um, ischemia on a pressure wire. So we're isolating the ischemia to a lesion level. And then we're targeting the intervention and doing the best intervention we possibly can. Mm-hmm. Uh, great, great explanation. So let me ask you a couple follow-up questions. And these are some of the patients that we, I mean, I regular, regularly see in my practice, and I'm, I'm sure you do too, is that patients uh, who are um, coming in for the for first assessment to see a cardiologist have mm. been seen by their primary care doctor and, um, you know, diagnosed with stable angina or chronic coronary syndrome, however you want to call it, um, CCS class 2, Canadian Cardiovascular System class 2, so it's stable angina. I'm not mm. talking of unstable angina, which is in the spectrum of acute coronary syndrome. And then they're started on a low dose of, of beta blocker, maybe a long-acting nitrate, and a stress test is ordered, uh, you know, mostly a stress echo or a myocardial perfusion stress test mm. with, with uh, you know, technician... Um, and the, there is mild reversible ischemia on the stress test. Mm. Uh, the patient is complaining of somewhat of stable anginal symptoms despite being on two antianginals. Um, now in the US, uh, at least you know, based on appropriate use criteria, unless the patient is maximized on antianginals, you know, PCI is considered you know, maybe appropriate or rarely inappropriate in, in, in such a scenario. And I right. think... Um, you know, maybe Orbita One had uh, had a role to play in this. Oh, for sure, yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. And now that we have Orbita Two and what we what you've just discussed, do you think it's fair game um, within the realm of appropriateness to to go ahead and stent these patients? I think so. To answer that very specific question, absolutely, there will be a change in the appropriate use criteria. I I, I I obviously not the writer of those criteria. I know Manish Patel quite well, who wrote it and got a lot of flack for some of the changes that they put in. Yeah. But the um, I suspect they will change guidelines, and I think people will move quite quickly to change the guidelines. 
And I think PCI is a good option. I think we've long known that it is a good option. We certainly know that patients do get a benefit. Uh, selecting those patients is the challenge. And in fact, Chris Rajkumar, who's uh, one of Rash's fellows, is doing a very interesting study that he has led on, which is looking at patients on uh, what happens when you balloon occlude their vessel. Because I'm sure you've seen patients that when you treat them, they've got a tight lesion, really tight lesion, and you balloon occlude their vessel, and they either get no symptoms or they get a chest pain that they've never had before. And you say, there, is that what, like your angina? And they say, no, I've never had that pain before. Mm-hmm. And that's always disappointing when that happens. Mm-hmm. We've all had these patients. Um, so the question is, uh, how do we select patients for angioplasty? Mm-hmm. For your specific example, the patient that you cited, I think you say, look, you're having symptoms. We've got a, a, a stress test that shows some changes. We can do an angiogram at relatively low risk to understand what the coronary anatomy is. Here in the UK, I think we'll do a lot of CTCA. If you've got access to high quality CCCA and high quality reporters, and that's important, then you can actually get a lot of the anatomical information up front. Because a lot of those um, MIBIs, the technetiums, there's a lot of false positives. Mm-hmm. And I think we should uh, acknowledge that. Mm-hmm. And so if we can mitigate the risk to the patient of exposure of an invasive procedure, then that's probably helpful as well. I quite like getting a combination of both anatomical and uh, ischemia testing. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't include CTFFR in that, okay? okay. I, that, that's an estimation of an estimate, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't think of that as a true physiological assessment. I know there are people who are pro that. I, I personally uh, remain on the fence. But I would get uh, the, get the data and then look, tell the patient, look, this is what we can do. Yes, and, you know, thanks for bringing up CTFFR. I sort of am I'm on the fence, and that is, you know, based on anecdotes from my own, you know, clinical practice where I've seen that the CTFFR was rendered positive, and when I ended up taking the patient to the to the lab and doing the invasive procedure, you know, just based on visual estimation, it didn't seem to be mm. significant to me, you know, to the to the eye. And then I'm sort of obligated to put a pressure wire down because CTFFR is positive, and that's what the patient's here for. Yes. And lo and behold, I found that the IFR was normal. Yes. I, um, I think that happens more than you realize. And I think CTFFR, um, once the the bottle has been uncorked it leads interventionalists to take these patients in and say well there's ischemia proven on that so i'm just going to put a stent in but if you actually take the opportunity to do a proper pressure wire assessment whether it's ifr or ffr uh it doesn't matter you'll find that the correlation is not as strong as you as you as you thought and that's because there are inherent limitations with ctffr they, it is inferring uh the viability of the tissue it's inferring the um, hemodynamic significance based on how well it can draw the lumen or the vessel. And the new CTs are phenomenally good and the algorithms have improved, but there are a number of inferences there. Yeah. And when things are borderline, that's when you're going to get the biggest amount of difference. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I would take the opportunity to, to reassess with a pressure wire. Uh, my fear was when it, people started using it routinely that they would just stent on the back of that value. Uh, whenever I have a CTFFR patient come to me, I always do the invasive pressure wire. Uh, the numbers don't always correlate. Yeah, no, I think I think my practice is very similar to yours in, in that I always go in with a pressure wire and, and see if it correlates with the CTFFR, which I think is actually a good segue mm. for us to talk about our second study now, which is FIRE. Yes. Um, which, uh, you know, sort of, and, you know, you certainly will talk to us more about it, but FIRE... Um, answered an important question, mm. um, you know, I think was a well-designed study mm. uh, published in the New England Journal um, and um, sort of was looking at the non-culprit vessels in the setting of an acute uh, myocardial infarction 
with physiological assessment, and I'll, I'll let you, yeah. you know, t- take the reins from here. So I think it's fire is definitely all of those things that you've said. So fire is an important study which looks at older patients. And it's uh, our colleagues who undertook the study, Simone, should be uh, applauded for, for their efforts in doing that. Because we know that traditionally patients tend to be younger in randomized control studies. We tend to select well patients who don't have a lot of comorbidities. And there remains a degree of doubt over what we do in older patients. Mm-hmm. And here in the UK, um, there is a study that has uh, been undertaken called the Signorita study, which looks at older patients and whether they should go to the cardiac cath lab or not after an NSTEMI. And that is a question that remains. And in some parts of the UK where people are still quite conservative, they won't take much older patients to the cath lab because we know that they have comorbidities, they have severe coronary arteries, they have heavy calcification and uh, you may not proceed with intervention. However, there is a cohort of patients who are over the age of 75 who are biologically still pretty good, Mm -hmm. who are not overtly frail. And in those patients, my personal practice is to offer them invasive angiography. And and then what they did was in this cohort of patients that were found to have either a STEMI or an STEMI, and they've successfully treated the target lesion, then the other lesions that are in the vessels, the right coronary, the circumflex, would then have revascularization according to a pressure wire assessment. And I think this is a good way of doing things. We know that pressure wires have a great deal of utility in helping you defer lesions quite safely. Mm -hmm. And there's been a number of studies over the years. There's um, the um, FFR Primalti study in the past that had similarly done this, but in a much younger cohort. And in this particular study, well-conducted international study, large number of patients, we see in an older cohort of patients improved outcomes in patients that have FFR physiologically guided revascularization in multivessel disease. And that fits in well with the other studies that we know to date, that more complete revascularization is better and that making sure that everything that can be done for a patient in a short time frame is almost certainly going to lead to improved outcomes. There are some weak points to all of these things because these studies are not blinded. And so whenever we do something that's not blinded, it means that the physicians who are following the patient up are going to be influenced by um, patients not having had done something. Mm -hmm. So say you've got a right coronary artery that's maybe 70% and the patient comes back to the clinic and he says, yeah, I feel fine, doc, but you know, I'm a little bit breathless after having had an anterior infarct. When the doc looks at the angiogram on the computer and says, hang on, maybe this is causing further problem, you're more likely to send the patient back to the cath lab. And so that would then count as a unplanned revascularization. However, if you've done everything in the initial admission, when the doc looks at the angiogram report or looks at the pictures and everything's been done, then it doesn't matter what the patient says. They're not sending the patient back to the lab. So there is an inherent bias in all of these studies whenever their patients are unblinded and the, op- and the people following the patients up are unblinded. So we should always take uh, with a, a pinch of salt the results of these kind of studies. In anything where we are, are subtra- potentially subtracting something, that leads to that kind of bias. And uh, we should just be careful. However, the overall findings of FIRE are in keeping with our understanding of the data that when you have an STEMI or an NSEMI, more complete revascularization is better. And what is interesting here is in an older cohort of patients with more comorbidities, more complex lesions, much more likely to be calcified, much more likely to need intravascular lithotripsy or rotablation or any of those kind of adjunctive treatments, we actually get better results if we get everything sorted. 
Yeah, let me ask you here about the timeline of complete revascularization. Mm. You know, I, in, in the setting of a STEMI, you certainly want to tend to the culprit vessel. Yes. And then if these lesions are angiographically significant, you know, I'm going to share with you what I do in my own practices. Mm. These patients usually stay in the, you know, CCU or the ICU the, the, the day or the night following okay. primary PCI. And then depending on how they're doing clinically, you know, if hemoglobin is stable, creatinine is stable, I tend to get them back in, you know, maybe a day or two during the same hospitalization and, you know, sort of stent the non-culprit vessel to, to render, you know, complete revascularization. And then there is a subset where, you know, there are angiographically indeterminate lesions and you want to pressure wire them. Mm. Um, and then there are some patients where you want them, they're frail maybe, you want to stabilize them, particularly in the cohort of patients you know, who were studied in the study. Mm. Um, and then I tend to discharge these patients um, and then bring them back, you know, maybe within two to three weeks and as an outpatient, stent the other lesion, um, plus or minus, you know, physiology-guided revascularization yeah. if that's indicated, and then send, try to send home the same day as, as the PCI. Yeah, Is that a reasonable take on i think so absolutely i mean that's fairly <clears throat> consistent with what we do so the problem with trying to design a study for this is that you are mandating a strategy and that strategy may not be applicable to the individual patient in front of you as doctors as physicians we have to think of the patient first mm -hmm. and we also have to work within the constraints of our hospital system and the network that we work in mm -hmm. and the resources that we have mm -hmm. it's all very well for a study saying this is the way we should do something but it may not apply in your particular hospital for your particular patient i think uh what we know from complete and what we've learned over time is more revascularization is better mm -hmm. the earlier it's done is probably better I'm still not convinced that doing everything in the index procedure is the right way to go. Mm -hmm. After all, if you've got a, a, a large anterior STEMI with a high clot burden, then suddenly uh, stenting and stunning a circumflex territory uh, is not gaining you anything. And in fact, maybe losing um, uh, some advantage there. Mm -hmm. So cooling the patient off and bringing the patient back is a very valid approach. I would also say that it depends on the lesions. If you've got something that's very modest then the patient can absolutely wait. They are not likely to be in jeopardy. Mm -hmm. And if you can bring them back in a time frame, we talk about 45 days because that's what Complete suggested. And I suspect Complete suggested that because uh, there was a, a Canadian study that drove it and uh, that worked well with their healthcare system. In the UK, that's not always possible. Not every hospital in the UK can deliver it. Our particular hospital does. We stick to like a, a four to six week window. We bring patients back in and we kind of move patients around in order to be able to facilitate that uh, but not everyone needs that and basing it on the parameters what you have what the echo looks like sometimes you may change your strategy altogether you may see that the patient in the cold light of day is much more frail mm -hmm. and maybe a more conservative approach is is very reasonable um, so you do have to tailor your treatment i think that's vitally important Yes, and I think um, one more um, question which you know comes to me, which sort of I've struggled with, um, is at what point in time do these acute MI patients who have unrevascularized or non-revascularized you know vessels or or lesions, at, and for, for whatever reason they remain unrevascularized or non-revascularized, hmm. at one at what point in their natural progression of disease or their trajectory do they become from 
you know, acute MI patient to a stable CAD patient? Yes, but, well, I, I don't know the answer to that. So obviously the, the ESC a couple of years ago t- uh, coined this term chronic coronary syndrome. Mm-hmm. And the reason they use that term was to try and uh, determine and demonstrate to patients that this is a p- chronic progressive condition. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not sure that the term has stuck. I know lots of thought leaders use it. I know uh, lots of people use it when they're on the stage. I'm not sure we use it in real life. However, uh, I think it is helpful to tell patients this is a chronic progressive condition. Mm -hmm. Unless you're taking all of your medications, you are putting yourself at risk of progressive issues. Certainly, I think if we look back at the original uh, myocardial infarction studies, really early days, if we look back before even aspirin, everyone looked at one-month outcomes. I think if you get past the first month, In general, patients are likely to be relatively stable, provided there wasn't something that was hanging off by a thread and they're taking all of their medications. Past that, I think you can start to mitigate a little bit their risk. However, we would consider anything, any activity within that first year to be due to that initial milieu that's created. Mm. And the antiplatelets do a lot of the heavy lifting here. They really protect the patients from further events. And we know we should give the high-intensity statin therapy. We now routinely add in ezetimibe weak, though, though it is. The effect is small. It has a super additive effect. And so all of these little things hopefully reduce that risk while they're waiting to come back for revascularization. So your post-acute MI concoction is then dual antiplatelet therapy, a beta blocker, mm-hmm. you know, with or without an ACE inhibitor given how the yes, systolic right. function is, and then you you do add azetamibe. Yeah, so uh, we do routinely add azetamibe, yes, mm-hmm. because we are trying to hit that magical less than 1.4 uh, um, millimoles per liter of LDL, mm-hmm. so which is a challenge. And uh, the way that primary care services here in the UK, they're on immense pressure. My wife's a primary care physician, so I understand that. Um, the clinics and things are massively overloaded and trying to expect here in the UK often secondary care tertiary care in hospitals we say oh GP to do this we write these ridiculous lists GP to do this GP to do that GP we can't possibly expect them to do these things Mm -hmm. I think it's absolutely farcical that we ask expect a primary care physician who has to understand obstetrics and gynecology pediatrics all these different things that we never have to think about to suddenly also worry about these um, things that really are in our domain so we start them and then we put patients into cardiac rehab, which the idea is that they're seen by a specialist nurse, physiotherapist, a dietitian who can help modulate their diet and hopefully progressively hit target. We also have a fairly low threshold of starting dapagliflozin as well. Uh, and this um, is one of the reasons we struggle to recruit patients into DAPA MI, uh, which is another study we were going to mention. Yes. Uh, and let's talk about let's yeah. talk about that study. So uh, DAPA MI is a, a, a novel, interesting story. So uh, the listeners and the audience will know that the SGLT2s have uh, literally rocketed in their use in the cardiac space, and in a way, we have all become metabolic doctors to mm-hmm. a certain degree. Mm-hmm. And I think. Uh, these drugs have revolutionized the care of these patients who previously uh, didn't have a lot of options. We know that SGLT2s are first line indicated in type 2 diabetics with coronary disease. So if you see a patient with coronary disease and they're type 2 diabetic, then they really should be on an SGLT2 inhibitor. Mm-hmm. And uh, we tend to use either uh, dapagliflozin or empagliflozin. There is also CANA as well, which we tend to use a lot less here in the UK. And uh, they have been shown to reduce heart failure events and to reduce myocardial infarction events. So that's really helpful, and as well as improving diabetic control and a bit of weight loss. In heart failure patients, it's been shown, whether you have diabetes or not, 
that you get a big improvement in systolic impairment and big improvement in outcomes and hospitalization. This is a revolution. And I and no doubt that you will have seen patients who've had benefit from this. And I, I certainly have. Absolutely. And this is across a spectrum of heart failure, right? It's complete spectrum. And this yeah. is what we learn now. This is why the terminology ejection fraction and these artificial bands that we put uh, really have been exposed now as being utterly artificial. They mm. really don't help anyone or anything. And the, uh, there is this full spectrum of benefit that's seen regardless of your ejection fraction, whether it's super low or in the so-called normal range with heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. Now, the absolute benefit gained in that cohort is less. It is less, but it is there. And mm-hmm. in fact, I started dapagliflozin on a lady relatively recently, and she uh, was so delighted of how much better she felt just having been started on a relatively simple medication. So we know that these things work. We have to tell them about they, the urine becomes sweet. They're much more likely to get urinary tract infections, much more likely to get candida. I think these are important things that can be a limiting factor. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that I hadn't appreciated as an interventionist is that they do cause problems in patients who are going for surgery. And our intensivists and our surgeons say that a lot of these patients post-surgeries, may, maybe bowel surgery, big, big operations that are a big insult to the body, it does trigger a euglycemic diabetic ketoacidosis mm. in these patients. So you have to be a little bit careful and sick day rules should apply. You should stop it on days that you're not eating. Now, um, so the companies are obviously very keen to expand the usage and the utility of these medications. Absolutely. So we've been using it in diabetics quite liberally. We've been using it in um, uh, patients with heart failure quite liberally. And then the question is, what about those patients that have had a myocardial infarction, predominantly STEMI, and they have got a slight reduction in their ejection fraction, not severe, slight reduction. So they're in that camp of maybe uh, 50 to 45%, and they've had complete revask, and you're happy with them. What can we add by adding in dapagliflozin? Now, in this particular study, the DAPRMI study, uh, it was predominantly conducted uh, in the United Kingdom, it's a, it's a, as I understand it, a global study, and the um, they they asked us to add this medication on. Now, we struggled in our particular catheter lab because uh, my clinical colleagues wanted to start it regardless. And if you'd been started on it clinically, then you couldn't be recruited into the study, Mm. which made recruiting was a bit challenging. I had to convince people, say, no, please don't start so we can enroll them in the study. In this particular study, there was a benefit on a combined endpoint that includes cardiometabolic effects. And that improves improvement in a number of other factors like HbA1c in terms of um, other parameters regarding their weight, all these kind of parameters. But in terms of heart outcomes, in terms of myocardial infarction, in terms of death, there was no meaningful change in that. And that's also perhaps to be predicted. These are patients who are lower risk in terms of their metabolic syndrome, their non-diabetics. They are uh, patients who've had complete revask already. And if you look at the event rate in this study, it was quite low, really quite low. I think the hard out point was around 2% and 2.5%. And it's really quite hard to show some major difference when the event rate's that low at one year. Yeah, which probably led the investigators to expand 
the the composite that's right uh, you know that's right endpoint for the study that's right yeah and so that undoubtedly has uh, some effects now do i see this as a negative for the medication no not really because we have a huge amount of data over the years that these medications are highly beneficial i personally see it as a, a class effect i struggle to understand why one SGLT2 will be better than another. I know that there's some absorption differences and some pharmacokinetic differences, but I suspect it's a little bit like the ACE inhibitors and the ARBs. This is a class you. effect. Yeah? I agree with you. And uh, so I, if a patient comes in on one, I don't change it. I leave them on it. And I use these medications liberally. And I think this probably completes our transformation from being pure cardiologists and interventionalists to now being very interested in cardiometabolics and, and sugar and all these other components of patients' health, which is good because we are physicians and we are doctors at the end of the day. Yeah, no, you know, very excellently put there. Um, so just to wrap this up, so your final panel of medications in a patient who's had an acute myocardial infarction would be which of the following? Yeah, so we tend to use aspirin uh, very very commonly. Mm -hmm. We have still a high use of clopidogrel. Mm -hmm. uh, and if they're not on clopidogrel, then they tend to be on ticagrelor. There has been a recent push in guidance to go with prizogrel because of some of the data collected in Eastern Europe. Mm -hmm. At the moment, we're still on clopidogrel or ticagrelor. We also tend to give high-intensity Torvastatin, usually at 80 milligrams, which is a big pill, difficult for patients to swallow. We add in azetamide. Most of these patients will be on a low dose beta blocker. We tend to use bisoprolol here. Mm -hmm. Some of the patients, if there's LV dysfunction, they will be given an ACE inhibitor. <laughs> and we did go through a phase of low threshold for starting in Tresto. Not sure the data is really there for that. I think Entresto has its utility, but it's later. And if these patients have got LV dysfunction, they will get dapagliflozin. Let me throw in one more there. Yes. What is your take on colchicine? Oh, yeah, colchicine. <laughs> so uh, I should tread carefully here. One of my uh, colleagues in the hospital is very interested. He's a um, he's cardiologist with an interest in vascular biology mm -hmm. and looks a lot at inflammation. Mm -hmm. And they are very interested in colchicine. Mm -hmm. And there is clearly a story there that we don't haven't fully unpicked. Mm -hmm. And the inflammatory studies have always shown promise, but have never quite nailed it. There is the one study that shows improvement from colchicine. My experience is that colchicine is best used predominantly in patients who've had true pericarditis or myopericarditis uh, because patients feel better when they're given this medication in conjunction with a non-steroidal. Um, I remain to be convinced in an acute coronary syndrome patients when we're already giving them a lot and then you're going to give them a drug that has GI side effects and bowel disturbance and things can be a bit tricky. Yeah, interestingly, and you know, I, I think from what I remember, there was um, a paper which collated data from all the colchicine studies and actually showed that at the expense of a reduction in cardiovascular mortality, which there was, mm. there was a signal toward an increase in all-cause mortality. Pneumonia which, is increased. Yeah. Yes. So remember, colchicine is, uh, has a, a slight immune suppression component to it. Mm -hmm. And so there, you, we should just be slightly careful with that because this, the studies do show an increase in pneumonia. Yeah, so no, I, I think the panel that you listed, um, minus the culture scene, is the standard mm. go-to panel, at least you know for me as well. Yes. Um, so I'm glad glad we discussed DAPA MI. Uh, just moving uh, forward to complete the the PCI studies, which we've been meaning to discuss uh, on the season finale. Uh, the next one that I want to bring up is Illumian Four. Oh yes. Um, which was um, you know presented by Dr. Ali, mm. um, published in the New England Journal. Highly anticipated trial. Highly anticipated. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and um, I think was sort of was was designed to be a trial to categorically put imaging as a class one indication for PCI. 
I'll let you share the results with us. Yeah, so uh, I've had the privilege of getting to know uh, Ziad Ali over the last few years, and he's a dynamic individual. I wish I had some of his energy. Um, <laughs> but uh, the Illumium studies have always shown so much promise. And, uh, and this was, as you say, designed to be able to really cement the position of OCT imaging as the imaging modality of choice. I think if you're an interventionalist of our era, there is a strong desire and uh, push for OCT because it is seductive, the imaging is amazing, and uh, it just it can be a lot easier to interpret in some settings. And I think we all feel that doing some form of intravascular imaging is vitally important when we're placing stents. Mm-hmm. We are doing a luminal treatment for an intraluminal problem and knowing what the vessel looks like from the inside, I would say, is quite important. Mm-hmm. I think we all underestimate vessel size. And in my practice, I use intravascular imaging in 100% of patients I'm stenting. Now, I recognize that sounds a bit outlandish because people will say, well, how's your hospital supporting that? Well, they haven't, they haven't taken me out and had me shot just yet. But that's what I do. For if I'm placing a stent, I will use intravascular imaging. Now, my personal preference is to use IVIS intravascular ultrasound. Mm-hmm. I find it easier. I find it quicker. I'm slightly older. I learned with that first. I'm familiar with it. I can deliver um, a, a, a solid state IVIS faster than we get a balloon prepped. And so, and I will use it in between balloon inflations uh, if needed and, you know, make sure I do before and after and often multiple runs. And so that's normal practice for me. Now, is that a phased array or is that rotational IVIS? Yeah, so this is phased array. So this okay. is the solid state IVIS. Mm-hmm. So this mm-hmm. is a much, much lower quality mm-hmm. image quality, much lower mm-hmm. quality. The image looks hazy. I agree. Mm-hmm. But someone has yet to convince me that there is huge benefit in the additional a benefit of the high resolution. Yes, you might be able to see a macrophage on OCT, okay? <laughs> but tell me what you're going to do about it, okay? And yes, you see a lot more dissections on OCT, but then we're told to ignore them. Mm-hmm. So do we need to see them? So that's my, my challenge with that. Now, coming back to Lumion 4, uh, as you say, this was well-designed and it was designed to tell us the additional benefit. And there, it's a study design that looked at a number of coronary endpoints in terms of stent size and expansion, malapposition, all those factors. And in this study that took patients who are more complex, longer lesions, more calcific disease, they found that there was definite improvement in all of those luminal measurements if you randomize a patient to OCT versus not. However, in terms of hard outcomes, this was not the case. Mm-hmm. Now, there are a number of reasons that this could have happened. One of the reasons that, as Ziad mentioned at the ESC presentation, was that this study unfortunately fell within the COVID period. In the COVID era, we all know it was an incredibly challenging period. We know that patients didn't come into hospital because they were afraid, and I, I suspect rightly so. But it does mean that we will have missed events as a consequence. Now, I'm not sure that's the entirety of the reason, because if you're having an NSTEMI or a STEMI, then you'll come into hospital regardless. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, if that really was the case that patients weren't coming in, then surely we would have picked up a signal on hard outcomes in terms of death. They would mm-hmm. have been dying mm-hmm. uh, as, a, as a major event. So I'm not entirely convinced that can explain everything. I think what we're dealing with here is whenever you design a study like this and you recruit expert centres, as um, Ziad and the St. Francis team did, then you end up selecting operators that can do it either way and as you will have experienced I experience all the time is that you have a learning effect when you're doing the study 
we did we found this in orbital one we found this when we did the ifr studies originally that you get a learning effect you get better as an operator because you have learnt from the patients that were randomized to intervention a versus b and then the learning that you got from a is now also applying to b so it becomes even harder to tell the difference Plus, invariably, there will be crossovers. And if mm-hmm. there's a crossover, mm-hmm. then you automatically go to the null. So uh, I think if you select a cohort of interventionists who are incredibly good at what they do and are well-versed, I'm not saying they've got OCTIs because no one really has because you genuinely can't tell from the angiogram. It's a, f- it's a 3D structure that you flatten. Exactly. Uh, and so you don't. no one has OCTIs. Mm-hmm. But you uh, learn to be more aggressive with your post-dilatation. Mm-hmm. You learn to be better with your preparation. You learn when to use the, um, the uh, lithotripsy, you know, the shockwave balloon. That will all drive to the null. And this is a real problem with all strategy studies. In any study which is comparing strategy A versus strategy B, there will be a learning effect unless strategy B basically is not to treat anything at all. Okay, And then you've got, in those patients, a subtraction anxiety, which means they come back. So this is a real problem with these studies. And I don't think our, our leaders and thought leaders really talk about this a lot. But we all know this happens. And if you really reflect on it, those of us who've recruited into studies, you realise that actually studies are a dirty game, mm-hmm. dirty, dirty game. Mm-hmm. And they you only recruit patients... You don't recruit the patient in the middle of the night. You don't recruit the patient with severe, uh, horrific calcific disease that needs three-vessel rotablation. And if you do, that patient is almost always going to count against you because that tiny perforation that you get, that counts against your modality of choice. So these these are problems with these studies. Yes, and I I think, um, you know, like you said, there was a difference in... In, in the stent size which was gained absolutely, yeah, um, absolutely. so the, the acute lumen gain was significant in favor of OCT oh for sure yeah. did not translate into heart clinical events yeah maybe I, over I, time maybe over time so theoretically mm-hmm. if you've got a bigger lumen that should mean that that stent is more likely to be patent five years eight years ten years down the line I agree with you I agree with you and I, I think that you know I, I mean I think across the spectrum of and there was also a meta-analysis which was published mm. simultaneously in the Lancet. Yeah. So Greg Stone um, did this wonderful network meta-analysis, which uh, really pulls together a lot of um, uh, data. And I think you've actually published in this field already as yes, well. I, mean, I think I you're an expert in this field, so uh, <clears throat> I'm sure you can speak uh, better than I. Uh, network analyses, meta-analyses are uh, a challenge to interpret. Uh, they have come with a lovely diagram that shows arrows pointing in all the different directions. And you basically compare the studies that looked at treatment A versus treatment B, and then you can make an inference against treatment C. Yes. Um, and mm-hmm. so uh, in these studies, essentially, it fits with our basic assumption that uh, using intravascular imaging of some kind, whether it's IVUS or OCT, is of benefit to patients. Uh, and I, I'm biased. I've been preaching this for a long time. And uh, I think people who do it routinely, we are always surprised. I did a case literally just yesterday, a right coronary artery that looked big. I thought it was going to be a four. I used an IVIS and it was 5.5. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I do IVIS in every case. Those are tricky. Yeah. Right to, tri- get you. right to tricky. The circuit is tricky and often the LED is tricky. Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure what vessel isn't tricky. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. No, I think, you know, what I was saying was that, um, and, you know, what, what the Greg Stone paper showed was similar to the paper which we'd published. Now, what we published was in JSKY mm. uh, in t- November of 2022. It was a study level, not a patient level which was published in Lancet, and we showed that, you know, IVAS or OCT-guided 
uh, is certainly superior when it comes to clinical outcomes, yeah. you know, compared with angiography-guided PCI. And I think in 2023, 2024, that should clearly be the standard of care. Uh, yeah, you know, I, we owe it to our patients, we owe it to ourselves. I, I struggle to understand when people say that they just don't want to do it because it's too long. I suspect people perhaps are masking their co- lack of confidence in image interpretation. And that's okay. Mm-hmm. If you don't know how to interpret the image, get someone to help you. Mm-hmm. I think that's important. If you uh, don't want to look foolish in the cath lab because you can't remember the numbers, numbers are complicated. The, the key thing is bigger is better. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you can get the extent fully opposed, fully expanded, then you're already onto a winner. And then once you do it, you'll begin to realize that the image is not so hard to interpret and you get better and better. I think that some of the errors that uh, some of our um, uh, senior colleagues have made over time is to make it too confusing to make it, oh, look at this, this is fibrous, and in this moment you should need to do this and that, and look at this little speckle. This confuses everyone. I think mm-hmm. we, we do have to keep things a little simple. Yeah, which which brings us to our next study, which was contrasting results, mm. you know, October. Yes. Um, you want to talk about that, another imaging study? Yeah, so October was another OCT study. This uh, clearly showed benefits. This is a smaller study, uh, around 1,200 patients, I believe. And so there is always a possibility of an error in the finding. It could potentially be a chance finding. Again, they look at a cohort of patients that should infer benefit, more complex lesions, longer lesions, bifurcations. And we know that bifurcations are areas that you're much more likely to struggle with. Mm -hmm. You're much likely to make a mistake. Uh, Most vessels, if you lose a major epicardial vessel, you're going to cause some degree of myocardial infarction. And so knowing that upfront, planning it upfront is undoubtedly going to be better. And in the October study, this time we see clear hard outcome benefits in myocardial infarction and revascularization. And so this, uh, I think, helps cement our idea that particularly in more complex lesions, you should take the opportunity to do some upfront imaging. The challenge is if you've done a DK crush and you've opened everything up into, you've opened the struts to the LED, uh, are you going to spend time getting the OCT back down? Now, I'd say it's incredibly satisfying when the imaging catheter flies down the bifurcation and you get great images because then you know that bifurcation is well treated. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you take a solid state IVIS, it's bulky. If that flies down, then you know that bifurcation is well treated. Uh, when it doesn't go down, it's a little bit more anxiety inducing. Is this patient more likely to get instant restenosis? I'd say yes. But it also tells you that maybe you need to follow that patient a little bit more carefully. Maybe you need to keep them on antiplatelets for a little bit longer. Um, and so I think it helps you personalize your treatment. Do you, let me ask you this because you, and this is an excellent point. Thanks for bringing this up. Do you tend to keep your patients on with bifurcation disease, which has been appropriately revascularized? Mm. Do you tend to keep them on longer duration of DAPT? I have done. Yeah. I do try and tailor uh, my antiplatelet use Mm -hmm. according to what I've done. Mm -hmm. And I think it does behoove the interventionist to make that decision. Mm -hmm. Uh, And often um, I, I, I know different hospitals work in different ways and different countries work in different ways. Uh, here in the UK, we do tend to default to one year's worth of dual antiplatelet therapy after intervention. That one year is so ingrained in general practitioners and primary care physicians that it's hard to shape that. So this process of doing six months only DAPT for stable disease mm-hmm. doesn't tend to work over here, in my experience. Mm-hmm. May in some hospitals, but mm-hmm. certainly not in ours. Mm-hmm. So um, uh, I tend to stick to 12 months. Mm-hmm. And in patients where I've had complex bifurcations, particularly proximal, left main uh, LED circumflex bifurcation, I tend to keep them on for longer term, as long as it's tolerated. Now, of course, if there's a bleeding event, then that's when I stop it. 
Okay, uh, because although we bleeding can be treated, and although bleeding um, isn't as devastating, it can be. So you have to be a little bit cautious in that setting. And in the same rubric, let me ask you, uh, what is your take on transitioning them from dual antiplatelet therapy? Certainly, if it's an acute coronary syndrome, you would like to keep it for at least a year. Yes. At which point in time are you now trans- tra- transitioning them to P2Y12 monotherapy with clopidogrel, or are you continuing aspirin alone? Yes. So this is always a uh, uh, this is a controversial topic, uh, and um, I am a big believer in giving patients monotherapy with clopidogrel. Mm-hmm. And so all, am I. All so. the data seems to suggest that. Mm-hmm. But then the people who do uh, platelet function testing mm-hmm. will say, "Hey, this guy's a non-responder," and my response is well, they've just been on clopidogrel for three years after the stents and nothing's happened. So something must be working. And so then that's a bit difficult to interpret. Does that mean that the platelet function studies are wrong? It might be. Uh, And all the platelet function studies have never shown any improvement in outcomes and have never shown that you improve decision-making in that Mm -hmm. regard. Mm -hmm. The genotyping studies are different, though. So the ones where you look if they've actually got an abnormality in their their cytochrome P450 enzymes uh, setting, but we don't have easy access to that. I'm also slightly careful of the fact that a lot of the uh, monotherapy studies are done in Korea, where patients tend to be a little bit lower body weight, Um, their compliance tends to be incredibly good, and they may respond a little bit more to uh, the antiplatelets. And in fact, if you look at a lot of the Japanese studies, they often use much lower doses. They use five milligrams of prazogrel, for example, which in the UK mm. would it's rarely used. Um, and, you know, you have to be low body weight and re- quite elderly to, yeah, to qualify I've seldom, for that. I've actually never used that dose in my practice in the uh, US. Either. I feel very uncomfortable with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, uh, you know, based on a clinical event that we had in a patient. So uh, I, my preference is, if you're going to give an antiplatelet, give it a decent dose. Uh, my preference is to use single platelet and get antiplatelet and get rid of the aspirin when possible. Um, but, but in a lot of these patients, you tell them these things, and then you see them six years down the line and you say, tell me your medications and they're still taking the aspirin. And you go, hang on, I told you to stop the aspirin. And they go, yeah, but the GP told me to carry on taking it because they didn't understand the rationale mm-hmm. or they didn't, you know, or someone else said, hey, you've got coronary disease. You really should be taking aspirin. So they just get restarted. And so unless you've got supervision of the patient uh, and they're under your purview, it's hard to, to maintain that. Yeah. So we're talking about antithrombotic strategies. Let's pivot from antiplatelets to anticoagulants. Okay. And let's bring up. Uh, the management of subclinical atrial fibrillation okay. with with um, you know oral anti ten inhibitors. Mm. Do you want to talk about that study with us? This is a very interesting study. We know that um, patients uh, at risk of atrial fibrillation can have subclinical AF. We don't know quite what to do with it. And if you put in a device, a pacemaker, or an ILR, you tend to find a lot more atrial fibrillation. And over the last year or so, there's been a number of studies that looked at patients who. Uh, ostensibly have no symptoms, but are found to have atrial fibrillation, so some form of paroxysmal AF. Mm-hmm. And do, you in, gain, do they gain a benefit by giving them an anticoagulant? And in Artesia. They looked at patients with a pacemaker device uh, and had uh, atrial electrocardiograms that are showing uh, atrial fibrillation and then randomized them to the addition of a pixaban or um, aspirin in this cohort. And uh, that in itself is a little bit of a controversial decision because, of course, does aspirin really do anything in atrial fibrillation? Probably no. I think we we know that from the Avoris study and some of the older studies. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it does cause bleeding. And so if you are, um, that will probably mitigate some of the bleeding risks seen in the apixaban arm. What they saw in this study 
is that there is a, a, a trend towards benefit. Mm-hmm. And so this means that perhaps we should be considering giving anticoagulation in these patients. The difficulty is there is a bleeding risk, and the bleeding risk is not small. And are we overdoing it with these potent medications? Here in the UK, certainly in our hospital and our network that I deal with, and I deal with a large, um, what we call a CCG, which is a network of primary care doctors, uh, our tendency is to anticoagulate. And we get asked this question frequently, probably once or twice a week, uh, because lots of our general practice have um, a live call devices, cardio devices. A lot of them, a lot of these patients get ILRs. They get ILRs at the drop of a hat these days because they're so easy to put in. And so we do find paroxysms of AF. And a lot of our patient, um, patients have AF. We tend to give them an anticoagulate. Now, this is device-detected AFib. This yeah. is not clinical AFib. This is any AFib. You know, this is any AFib, yeah, essentially. Of any, so, any duration, not, yeah, not, so, not a threshold for a particular cutoff or a certain number of minutes. Or. So, so tricky. So we prefer for it to be longer. Mm-hmm. So if you've got 30 seconds of AFib on a one-off recording and it never occurs again, then we probably wouldn't give it. But if you're having uh, more than that, if you're having 30, 40 minutes of, of it, mm-hmm. then maybe you should. Now, that may be controversial. I think opinions will vary. I'm not an electrophysiologist. We ask the electrophysiologists, uh, and they, their opinions vary too. Uh, and then you should look at the patient, and you should look at their risk factors. If the chance for us score is very high, um, which it can be in these mm-hmm. paced patients, mm-hmm. then it would be, I think, reasonable to give them uh, uh, something like a NOAC or DOAC. These medications largely are safe and are easy for patients to take. I talk to the patient, see what they want to do. What I definitely don't do is go down the route of doing appendage closure. Uh, I think that is a bridge too far. I know people have suggested that. I don't think that is indicated in any way. And uh, I'm still not convinced about uh, left atrial appendage closure devices. I'm I'm not convinced that they help anyone other than the physician. I'm on the same page as you on that one as well. Mm. Um, I've not been a believer. Uh, I may be wrong, uh, but I, I do think that you know, what we have is, as medical therapy is very important and, and very effective. Yes. And the number uh, of patients who've got an atrial appendage device who are also taking uh, Epixaban or Warfarin, I just, I'm, I'm amazed by it. Yeah, I find it. So what was the whole point? Um, so I just don't know why they, why my colleagues do that. So I tend not to refer. I mean, occasionally you'll have a patient who's had an intracranial hemorrhage and has got an absolute contraindication. Um, but if they're low Chad's vascular and the paroxysm AF is very intermittent, then... Are we really helping them? Um, probably, probably better off than putting a, a device that doesn't create closure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so moving on, um, so to the last study that I want to discuss with you, and I, I think this would, you know, certainly can't end um, the season finale without with, without not discussing, you know, the um, um, the GLP one yeah. uh, therapies, um, which you know I think have now become the cardiology drug. Uh, yes, you know they are the cardiology drug now. So you want to talk to us about yeah. the select trial? So we love stealing other people's drugs. Yes. <laughs> as cardiologists. <laughs> so these drugs are our drugs now. Um, so let's talk about. It. So I think I think actually this is probably the study of the year, mm-hmm. and I think it helps change our understanding and definitions of body, of weight, on how we as physicians who talk to patients about this and risk adjustment long term. 
So we know that the GLP-1 medications, the GLP-1 agonists like semaglutide, have been long shown in diabetics to improve HbA1c, improve uh, and cardiovascular outcomes. So a long, long time ago, uh, the listeners will know that there were um, a rosiglitazone mm-hmm. caused major harm, it caused heart failure, and that was not detected on the original diabetes studies because the FDA mandated studies that look predominantly at sugar control. Mm-hmm. So following that, they started saying, look, you should do prove that you aren't killing patients from cardiac events so you have to do a cardiovascular outcome study and when they did those studies they were i think just aiming to show neutrality i think safety essentially but then it turns out that these drugs are actually quite good and the glp1 medications seem to improve cardiovascular outcomes in diabetic patients and you see it varies there are lots of different studies uh, um, they they have a probably around a 20 percent reduction in major adverse cardiovascular events either a three-point mace or a four-point mace depending on which study you look at And uh, this then leads to this idea of, could this be of benefit to other patients? And then at the same time, we know now that these medications promote weight loss. And in diabetes, um, perhaps you don't see as much weight loss because there are other comorbidities and patients are often informed to eat carbohydrates because we don't want them to lose you know their sugars to go low and Mm. which is Mm. really quite incorrect in type 2 diabetes but Mm. this is what patients are obsessively told and so perhaps this has masked the weight loss story now we've got these drugs and we've seen in the step i think the step five study if i'm correct um i hope it's step five they should it's the 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 step half which was presented yeah at at aha yes and then but there was a a weight loss study which Mm -hmm. they looked at people and they said look can these medications cause weight loss? And yes, they can. And they can typically cause around a 15% weight loss mm-hmm. on average, which is a phenomenal amount mm-hmm. of weight loss. And uh, this particular study has looked at patients who've had myocardial infarction, who are overweight, a BMI of more than 26, I believe. But on average, I think the median BMI was around 30, 33. And uh, so these are heavy people. And they added in semaglutide and the traditional dose of 2.4 uh, milligrams as a subcutaneous injection. So the patient has to inject themselves. They have to be engaged. And they found, amazingly, a 20% reduction in hard outcomes in uh, a combined MACE. And they lost weight. And they felt better. And the metabolics improved. And I think, I think, the, uh, I think they lost around 9% body weight in this particular study in versus the placebo, which was uh, a couple of percent. So meaningful weight loss. And what I would say is, particularly our male patients, they notice it on their belt size. And they were losing, you know, a couple of inches, around seven and a half, eight centimeters on their belt. Can you imagine? Suddenly you had to buy whole new trousers. I think people, if you had that amount of weight loss, you feel better. And unsurprisingly, it improves heart failure outcomes, improves hospitalization. And it means that if you've got less cardiac demand, you're going to get less angina. But really, really amazingly is the mortality benefit. And I think that is a powerful thing to learn about because I think over the last few years, we have adapted our mindset and said that, okay, if you're, if you're heavy, then that's okay, you're heavy. And that's just how you are and you don't have to change. But actually this shows that maybe if you were not so heavy, then actually you get a cardiovascular benefit. Now, this is in a cohort of patients that have had a heart attack. Almost, I believe, around 60% of them mm-hmm. had, had a heart attack. And mm-hmm. there's peripheral vascular disease as well. and things. So, But these are our patients. These are cardiac yeah. patients. These are cardiovascular disease patients Absolutely. we see day in and day out in our day clinics. And, and it's 
it's a substantial amount. I mm. mean, that BMI is seen not infrequently in our yeah. clinics. And, and, and BMI is vitally important. It's not mm. a perfect measure. Mm. I completely agree. Uh, and there are people who are physically very muscular and their BMI will read out high. Um, but uh, we, we know who we're talking about here. We're talking about people who are, uh, who are adipose, high adipose tissue who are overweight. Uh, and I think we can help people. Now, our bariatric services in our hospitals are stretched and they struggle. And um, I think we know that patients can overcome a balloon that's placed in their stomach or gastric banding and they, people start blending their food. And these medications suppress appetite. And so you simply don't feel like eating and you eat less. But you do get some nausea and you do get some GI disturbance. And around 15, 16% of these patients do end up giving up the drug. But amazingly, 8% of patients gave up the drug on the placebo. So I suspect it's the process of injecting yourself that's driving that. And I think that is a limitation. You've got to inject yourself with the medication. And of course, it's really hard to get hold of the drug because now everyone wants it. And the celebrities are taking it, overweight people in general wanting to get it. And it means that uh, it's hard for our patients to get hold of it when we want it. And the company, as I understand it, can't manufacture it fast enough. But this is the beginning of a story because now, as always happens in the pharmaceutical industry, the other companies are racing. There's a number of other products that are coming close to market. They're actively in test. Some have already given their headline results. And some of them are even more potent, 25% weight loss. Mm. These are phenomenal numbers. I would see this as a net positive overall. Now, are we medicalizing weight? We are, no doubt. Are we creating a situation where we're encouraging people to inject themselves for something that maybe other measures would be better, more exercise, better diet? Maybe. But the difficulty is we live in this world as the world is. Our patients, we are bombarded with adverts for food, fast food, easy to eat calories, highly soluble calories that we ingest without thought it happens to me i do i do two cath lab days back to back my god the amount of calories i eat on those days the cakes the sweets the things that staff bring in it's too easy to eat so if i do that then what do my patients do we know this it impacts them so i don't judge patients who've put weight on because i think the world is designed to put weight on the calories are there you're going to put weight on and if you're in the US where the cities are not designed for walking, they're designed for driving, then that's another missed opportunity for weight loss. And, uh, you know... Um, and access you, to highly soluble food is very easy. Yeah, and access I mean, to, you know, nutritionally dense but otherwise complex carbohydrate food is very, very hard. Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, I, I was in San Francisco for a, a TCT and I went for a coffee with a dear friend, Bruce Samuels. And my gosh expensive in california 32 bucks for two coffees my god but the number of calories in this beverage i'm going to call it a beverage because i'm not sure it was a coffee they had so many different things added to this it tasted great but it probably had around 1500 calories i mean this is insane and people are having this left day, and center, day, out. day in and day out mm -hmm. uh, and we can't help ourselves the companies have us addicted they know they've got us addicted that's why the whole of the food system works in the way it does so we've got to challenge it in some way now uh, is injections the solution? Maybe. Is it the ultimate solution? Almost certainly not. But it helps change the conversation. Mm -hmm. And if it means that we've got patients who we can certainly improve their outcome, mortality, major adverse cardiovascular events, then I don't see this as a barrier. Now, I've had interesting conversations with GPs, primary care physicians. I've had people who say, oh, no, this is a lifestyle thing. They just need to, need to eat less, work it off. I try not to be uh, as judgmental. 
Uh, we all have our biases, but I think uh, if we can give them a therapy, I think it's an option. Excellent. I think this was an excellent study to wrap things up for the season finale. Um, any closing remarks for Parallax? Any closing remarks for season five? And again, it's been fantastic to do this with you in person yes. in a studio in London. That's right. Uh, it's been it's been phenomenal. Well, I'd, I'd say, uh, you know, you should be absolutely applauded. You and your team produce a fantastic product. I love listening to your you and your thoughts and listening to people from around the world who are giving their ideas and aspects of cardiovascular care. And it helps highlight to me that we there are a lot of similarities. There are differences, but there are a lot of similarities. We are probably cardiologists first rather than a citizen of the US or citizen of the UK. You're right. There, uh, there are more similarities than yeah, differences. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And uh, I love listening to your podcast. And I think it gives us a great deal of information that is easy to digest, easy for us to learn from. And we can do it whenever we've got a free moment. So I tend to listen to it in my car, uh, London. So the listeners won't know that I had a long drive here. <laughs> We're in East London at the moment, came from central London. You know, spend a lot of time in cars uh, in London or in public transport. And it gives, it's a great thing to listen to. And I just, you know, want to applaud you for the incredible success that you've had from this and hope it continues for many years ahead. Oh, thank you. I think it's um, thanks to listeners and also guests like yourself, you know, who've made this such a success. And I think, um, you know, our effort is to have conversations which are easily digestible, which are not too dense, mm. uh, you know, because I think we can find dense data all over. Oh, you yeah. know, it's easy to find that as cardiologists. But I think it. To have these conversations in, in an easy format where, you know, people who are working out or, you know, like you said, you're in, you're driving or in public transport or, you know, having a jog or, you know, in the evening when, you know, the day has winded down, can, you know, digest these nuggets and sort of implement them in their practice, you know, is, yeah. is really what, what, what we want. But no, thank you. It's, it's been a pleasure to have you in person and thank you for doing this for us again. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much for the invitation. Yeah, thank you. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast produced by Radcliffe Cardiology in association with makeadent.org. We aim to bring you a new angle of all things cardiology every second week. Review us on your favourite podcast app or send your comments or questions to podcast at radcliffe-group.com. To view the series, head to radcliffecardiology.com forward slash podcasts forward slash parallax. Thanks for listening.